Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Cassie, and welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's a treat to chat with you today. Yeah, same for me. You have a very interesting and good way of building a report very fast. <laughs> it's funny you say interesting in my family. Um, my kids always joke. It's like, do you mean interesting in the good way or bad way? I will <laughs> I mean just in, assume in, you mean the good way. It's a good way because I've done this many times, many, many times. And it's almost as if we're like old friends catching up as opposed to, you know, we're talking about a fairly serious topic. So you have a gift in that way, I would say, which is very rare, actually. Well, thank you. I love the idea of us being old friends catching up because that is what happiness is about. And that's what my research is about. So this is a great start. Well, I find your research very interesting because, you know, when you get to a certain point in life, you start thinking about happiness. Now, some people call it a midlife crisis. I'm going to avoid that word totally. But I think when you're young, you have this perception that every year is going to get better. And it usually gets better. You know, you earn more money, you travel more, you do more things. But at a certain age, the best years seem to be behind you. And you worry about things like happiness, what's going to be next year, what's going to be 10 years from now. So in your work on happiness, what do you think are the big drivers here? What should we get right? What should we be thinking about? Um, well, that's a really big question of what are the drivers, and I would love um, to start to unpack that. And I think even before we do, I think it's helpful to define what I mean when I even use the word happy or talk about our happiness. Yeah. And what I'm referring to is pulling from the academic literature, which is referred to as subjective well-being. Mm -hmm. um, and it's basically how positive do you feel in the day-to-day? -day? That is, how much joy do you feel in your daily life? And also how little negative emotion you feel. But there, it's not just that sort of moment-to-moment -moment experience. It's also an evaluation of your life overall, of how yes. satisfying it is, how meaningful it feels. So when I ask you, are you happy? People are able to respond. <laughs> yes. They are able to respond based off of how they're feeling at that moment and how they're feeling at that moment influences their assessment of how um, satisfied they feel with their life overall. And sometimes uh, people assume that there's this disconnect between feeling happy and having a sense of meaning in life. Um, and in our work, we actually look at data across the entire world of um, hundreds of thousands of individuals and their reporting of how happy they feel and uh, how much meaning they feel like they have in life. And the correlation is very high. So that's to say that when people feel happy, they're more likely to experience meaning. And when they feel like their life is meaningful, um, they feel happy. So that is I, I want to start with that by um, sort of pushing aside the notion that happiness is a sort of light and frivolous thing yes. that uh, is flipping and passing um, because it's not. It's our assessment of how, how good our life is and how we're feeling in that. Um, and also as I'm sort of building on or motivating yes why happiness is important, there's also a lot of research that shows the positive consequences of feeling happy in our lives, of feeling satisfied with our lives. 
um, showing that it has positive effects across our domains of life. So in our interpersonal relationships, when people feel happy, um, they like others more, they are liked by others more, they're likely to be kinder, to spend time to help others. So it makes us good to the people around us. Yes. Um, there's positive relationships with respect to health. So when we feel happy, our immune functioning gets boosted, we react better to physiological stressors. Um, we're more likely to stick to treatment regimes. So their happiness is associated with longevity. And also in the workplace. So I know that a lot of listeners here, they're thinking about their skills that they can apply on the job. And happiness, um, when employees feel happier in their work, they are more engaged, they are better performers, they are more committed to the organization overall, willing to sort of go above and beyond for the organization. And they're more likely to not quit. And to actually show up. So organizations care about their employees' happiness because it uh, offsets the likelihood that you'll see absenteeism and um, turnover. So all to say, happiness is important. <laughs> and I know that no, wasn't I your love question. That. We can I've go from there. To, <laughs> to many, many CEOs on the show and business leaders, but nobody has been able to articulate a business case for happiness. They treat it as a moral good that it's almost as if they're doing it because it's nice to do it, but they don't really know why they're doing it. Why are they trying to make the employees happy? Because it's the right thing to do. But you seem to have built a business case behind what are the positive benefits to individuals, to companies for focusing on happiness. Now, when you were speaking through that, you made me think of a question that I hadn't thought about before. Is happiness an emotion or is it a skill? Oh, interesting way to frame it. Um, off the bat, I would say it's an emotion. It's how are you feeling? And also, how are you feeling about? So it has that evaluative component as well. But it's a skill. You can yes. do happy. You can choose happiness. So even um, sort of touching back to your comment of making a business case for happiness, I have had to yes, <laughs> and work, practiced yes. in it because I developed a few years ago. So my research is um, since I was a PhD student. So um, what? <laughs> whatever, for the last 15 yeah. years, um, I have been researching happiness and in particular, the role of time. Um, and I've been, I, I got my PhD at a business school. So at Stanford's um, GSB, so the Graduate School of Business. Oh, great, good and school. my first job as a professor um, was at Wharton. <laughs> so again, a business school at the University of Pennsylvania. And I uh, have been researching happiness throughout. And now I'm a professor at uh, UCLA. Yes. And I've always been researching happiness and that I was teaching more traditional marketing courses. And then given sort of my desire at this stage of my life, I'm like, oh my gosh, is I need to be teaching what I actually know about. And there's so much insight that's in academic papers, um, not just my publications, but um, my, that of my colleagues. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much that can be applied to the question of, can you do happiness? So, and um, I proposed to my UCLA colleagues that I actually develop and teach a course on happiness to our MBAs and executive MBAs. And at first there was like, well, happiness, why at a business school? This isn't about yeah. business. And so I made the case that it is absolutely about business, that we want our MBAs not only to get the skills, you know, the statistical skills, the marketing skills um, to get the job, but we want them to thrive in their careers, you know, 10 years on, 15 years yes. on, as they're managing uh, other dimensions of their life, like having a family as well as um, having a job. But also, I absolutely expect them all to be leaders within yes. their organization, leaders within society. 
So that need, means that they need to know how to take care of themselves so they don't get burnt out, but it also means they need to know how to make it so that their employees um, don't get burnt out, the people on their teams. And so I have made the case and I do, as I teach this course, this course, now I've been teaching it for three years and it's become one of the most popular classes at uh, Anderson. Um, and the first day of each, each you know, time I'm teaching the course, I tell them this is, yes, I want you to be happy because that is you know, something that drives all of us, this pursuit of happiness. But really it's important for, for you in your careers, it's important for the people that are gonna be on your teams. And honestly, it's important for society. Um, as we are engaging in the world, um, engaging uh, within our communities, the extent to which we are happy, it makes us better in those domains. I will say I'm more inclined to listen to someone talking about happiness when they seem happy when I'm talking to them like <laughs> you are right now. <laughs> I think that's usually a good sign. So what you said is, is really interesting for me. And you made me think of two specific things. The first one, and it's a question, can you be happy? Is an absolute level of happiness for each person or can you be happier than before? Um, you can be happier than before. So there is- There's like a stock index. It goes up or down relative to what yeah, you've Yeah, and we have our individual um, sort of baseline levels. That's what's your typical sort of chronic- mood. Um, and actually going back, uh, um, relating this to your earlier question, is it an emotion or is it a skill? There's different components of this. Yeah. So let me tell you about the inputs into happiness. What are the determinants? And uh, Sonia Lubomorski, um, who is a happiness researcher, um, she did an, a meta-analysis of looking when she did the analysis, it was looking at all the studies to that point that had happiness as a dependent variable or as a correlate, looking at what is the effect size of these various inputs into happiness. And from that, she identified that a big chunk of it um, is based off of our natural disposition. So were you born um, with the personality that is more positive, where you sort of move through life, seeing the glass as half full in, in all yeah. situations? Um, or do you have a more sort of negative natural disposition? Um, and they identified the sort of inherent um, positivity of individuals based off of twin studies, actually. Um, and nowadays, even more recently, they can look at um, sort of genetic um, uh, look more closely at genes. But anyway, so there is a big chunk that's based off of our natural disposition. But there is also a little chunk and a littler effect yeah. than many people think in terms of when um, situational circumstances. So income level, how attractive you are, whether or not you are married. So oftentimes people actually think that if only I were in a sort of lucky set of circumstances yeah. where I had a lot of money, that I was super beautiful, um, and that I had met the love of my life such that I was willing to get married, then surely I would be happy. But actually, those um, circumstances do have an effect, but a significantly smaller one than people predict. And there's a remaining chunk of... Uh, um, sort of determinants or inputs into our happiness. And this is the part that we have control over. So how we think and how we behave in our day-to-day, -day, and I specifically think about it, how we spend our time and our mindset when we're spending that time has a significant influence on how happy we feel day-to-day -day and also how satisfied we feel with our lives overall. And this is the interesting piece because this is the piece that we have control over. If we know how should we be thinking, how should we be spending our time, then that means that we can develop a skill to be feel happier. My book is actually um, called Happier Hour. Yeah. Um, 
with this notion that how we spend our hours sums up to our life. And, uh, and I say happier because it's not just being happy in that hour, mm -hmm. it's what can you do based off of the academic research? What can you do? How should you be spending your time to be happier? Okay. So this raises other interesting questions to me. Let, let's come back to the point you made here. So the first one is when something happens to you, the meaning you give it determines if you'll be happy or not. So if, if um, you face a bad moment in your life, you can choose to give it a positive meaning or you can choose to give it a negative meaning. Or is that the, the crux of what you're talking about? Yes, that's one piece of it, but it doesn't have to be quite as complex than that as that. Yes, if there is a negative experience that you have in your life, to the extent that you can find meaning in it, that you can link it to a broader narrative of your life story, um, such that you come out of it having learned from that experience, yes. then actually those negative experiences are very positive in terms of contributing to a sense of meaning in life, which is, um, is important, which we want uh, to feel good about our lives. Um, so there is making meaning out of it. But I think the, the point that I was actually making is even more basic than that. It's not making meaning out of it that you need to do every moment of like, yeah. you know, why is like, yeah, why is time. my coffee less delicious today <laughs> than it's like, I don't need to make meaning out of it. But you can actually, I think the bigger point is focusing on the positive aspect of that experience versus focusing on the negative. So people who have a natural um, personality that is a happier personality tend to be like, for that coffee example, I mean, that's a silly example, but it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so lucky that I get to have, you know, a warm cup of coffee as opposed to the natural grump. Someone yeah. who has a negative, they're like, oh, and like all they're focusing on is the fact that it's less than perfect, less than what they were um, wanting. So it's really an attentional story. Where are you focusing your attention? Is it on the good aspects of that set of circumstances, or are you drawing your attention to the bad? So all to say, meaning-making is helpful, but it that's sort of, it, it's much more involved. Yeah. And so that's like when, you know, we're coming, hopefully, out of a global pandemic to the extent that you can, un, like, make meaning from that and identify what you learned from that experience, how you might even be better off, that is important. But even in the day-to-day -day throughout the pandemic, it's yeah. like you can be focusing on the bad parts or you can like find the silver lining. And one's uh, practice in finding the silver lining, that's where sort of choice comes in. That's where the skill comes in. One of the interventions that actually has proven to be um, very effective and having long-term effects on happiness is keeping a gratitude journal. And I almost like, I know everyone sort of rolls their eyes when they <laughs> hear this because it sounds so hokey, but whether you keep a journal or not, what it is doing is it's making you practice focusing on the positives in your day um, as opposed to the negatives. And the more you practice that, um, then you become more like a sort of naturally cheery person. So the point of the journal is to force you to develop a habit. And at a certain point, you may not need the journal anymore because the habit's ingrained in you. Yeah. And honestly, I actually don't like keeping a journal because then it starts feeling like a chore. So I suggest people do it in other ways. Um, in you know, like, but it is habit formation. So you could tie it to something that you do every day, like brushing your teeth at the end of the day, you know, as you're getting ready for bed, instead of being sort of mindless at that point and brushing your teeth for those two minutes of thinking, <laughs> what are, yes. you know, focusing your attention on the good stuff that happened? Like what, what, what was good from the day? What are you grateful 
for. I also do it um, with my family. My poor family is subjected to You're my happiness. Family. <laughs> so um, at the dinner table, um, I have everyone go around and share um, what was good, what good happened uh, for them that day. And that is a training. It's like, okay, let's focus on the good. Um, and we, and it's all also very connecting because we, you know, we're, you know, kids are off to school. My husband's off at his job. I'm off at my job. And it sort of brings us into each other's experiences, but in particular, focusing on the good in those experiences. Um, And the social component is not only more connecting, but it makes it so that we don't adapt to it quite so readily. So like things that, and I think this is worth talking about maybe a little bit more later, is that we get used to things over time. And so even things that are good stop having as, as strong of an impact on us. But if you vary it or make it a little bit more complex, like having that social, um, social sort of component of this practice, then it um, maintains attention. So it is a story of attention. It's also as if by doing it with your family, there's a sense of accountability there because (laughs) it's your family you care about them and each one owes each other accountable so coming back to this concept of happiness Mm -hmm. when i talk to executive clients from all over the world the most common thing they tell me is that if they just had more time everything would work out they could take (gasps) care of their kids they could take their significant others out to paris more often they could go to the gym they could watch their favorite shows Now, my thought on this, and I want to hear what your thought on this is, is that almost every client I work with, they're pretty bad at time management. I don't think giving them more time is going to help because it's going to mess up more of the time they have. So what is the sweet spot here in terms of managing time? How should we think about time? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because that is really the crux of um, my work, my research. Um, And what I think is so critical for all of us, not all of us, (laughs) I suspect though, all of those who are listening to this podcast (laughs) um, is, uh, so there's this experience of time poverty. Um, And time poverty is the acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And I'm sure even if you haven't heard that term before, you can relate. I conducted a nationwide poll um, within the US um, measuring the extent to which individuals feel time poor. And we find that almost half of the US population feels time poor. They feel like they don't have enough time to do what they want to do. Um, we do find that it's more acute for um, moms than dads so, and, and for women than men, actually. Yes. It's more acute for folks who work than the folks who don't work. Um, but all types of people um, report feeling time poor. Um, people who don't have kids and also people who don't work. And this is bad because um, our research also shows the negative effects of feeling time poor. It makes us less. Um, It makes us less healthy. So we don't take time to exercise. We don't eat, take the time to eat healthfully. So we're more likely to eat fast food. We don't take time to go to the doctor. It also makes us less kind. We don't take the time to help others out. It makes us less confident. We don't feel like we can achieve the goals that we set for ourselves. And my work shows it makes us less happy. And me personally, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. you know, when I shared those demographics of who feels particularly time poor, working parents of young kids where your partner also works, that is, I fall into every single one of those buckets and I feel incredibly time poor and actually so much so that earlier in my career when I was on the faculty at Wharton, I was, I thought I was, I was actually going to quit like my work. I was like, there's no way I can do this. Like it yes. felt, I did not have enough time to do it all. That's what I felt. And I also felt that I didn't have enough time to do it all well, nor to enjoy any of it along the way. So I was like, 
the solution is clear. I should quit my job and move to like a sunny island Bali. somewhere in <laughs> Bali. That yeah. would have been perfect. But before I did that, because I am a researcher, I'm like, this is actually an empirical question. Would I feel happier if I had a whole lot more time? And so I recruited a couple of my favorite collaborators, Hal Hirschfield and Marissa Sharif. And we examined this question. We looked, we analyzed um, data to look at what's the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have in their lives and their happiness. Yes. And we analyzed among the many sort of studies, um, we analyzed uh, the American Time Use Survey. So this is a data set of tens of thousands of working and non-working Americans. And what it does is it captures how they spent their previous day. And we use that to calculate how many hours did each of these tens of thousands of individuals spend yeah. on discretionary activities. That is, you know, what they wanted to do. And we could look at what the relationship between that and their life satisfaction. And the results were really interesting. What we found was an inverted U-shape. So with very little time, you saw sort of me and probably yeah. you. <laughs> People are less happy with too little time. And in our data set or that particular data set, it was less than two hours spent on in a regular day on discretionary activities. People were less happy. But what was really interesting and in which we didn't initially expect was that when people had too much time, and in this data set, it was above about five hours of discretionary hours in um, a regular day, then actually people were also less happy. And that was interesting. So that's telling me that maybe, you know, spending day in and day out, sitting on the beach and doing relaxing actually wouldn't make me happier. And in digging into why, why would that make me less happy? Um, our data suggests that it, when people have too much discretionary time, too much free time in their regular lives, they feel unproductive and they lack a sense of purpose. That is, we want to be somewhat busy because we want to have sort of something to show for how we spend the hours of our day. Um, and when we don't, then it sort of it makes us dissatisfied because we don't feel a sense of purpose. Work for many people does provide a sense of purpose. There are other ways of spending time that can feel purposeful and productive that are not work related. So among retirees, for instance, yes. you see that those who do volunteer work are actually more satisfied. They don't, you don't see that dip in uh, happiness because um, they, they are spending their time in sort of purposeful ways, according to oneself. And that's the important thing too. So that was answering to all of those who do feel time poor, don't quit because if you have too <laughs> much time, um, you will uh, feel dissatisfied. Um, but it also points to that sort of sweet spot that you were alluding to, that between two and five hours of discretionary discretionary hours within your day, which is a pretty wide range. Yes. It's actually not about how much time you have. It's how you spend the time that you have. Yes. Um, and then that raises a whole interesting other sort of set of questions like, okay, so how should we be spending our time? It also, that two hours is an interesting one because Although for those of us who are time poor, it might sound like such a luxury, like the idea of having two hours to spend yes. however you choose in a day might seem out of reach. But if you do an honest calculation or sort of for myself, actually, in that time, I was like, if I did an honest calculation in a typical, typical day, um, how much time was I spending in ways that I truly wanted? And I realized that, you know, between you know, when I had... At, at that point when I was having my sort of crisis of like, mm -hmm. should I quit? Um, I had a four month old and between 20 minutes of cuddling with him before I went to work um, on the, my commute home, of, you know, on the phone with my best friend, when I got home having, uh, of course, I would like it to be more leisurely dinner, but say 30 minutes 
of um, dining with my husband and then, you know, 20 sweet minutes singing my son to sleep. That gets me at an hour and a half that I wouldn't have wanted to spend in any other way. So it's only about a half hour more that I, you know, yes. needed to reach. So it's not out of our reach. And then it becomes a question of, okay, we have, how do we spend the hours that we do have available? How do we carve out and make time for activities that give us energy, that give us a sense of joy, so that when asked, you know, are you happy? <laughs> you yeah. will be more likely to answer yes. And like, yes, I might feel time poor. I might wish that I had even more time, but feeling like the time that you're spending is fulfilling and not just that your days are full. Okay, so now what you said is very interesting and that's a good interesting, you know, based on what <laughs> Thanks. you should say. Thank you for being clear on that. <laughs> but it raised a very interesting question for me. And let me explain the question to you and maybe you've looked at this in your research. To a large degree, the way we feel about having less time or too much discretionary time is a function of what society and culture thinks we need to feel. So the question I have is that, do people feel that they need to be busy and work because we've conditioned them to think that's what gives them happiness? For example, if we live in a society where people didn't work as much and they had more free time, would they miss work? And the question I want to know is that, will this conditioning change if cultural values change? Um, that's a wonderful question because there is absolutely a um, sort of cultural component to this. There's interesting work um, by uh, colleagues of mine where they show that busyness has become somewhat of a status symbol, that when you're yes. like, oh my gosh, I'm yes. busy, then that's communicating to others as well as I would actually say yourself that you are in high demand, that you yeah. are competent, that people need you. Yes. Um, and so busyness has um, taken on this, this status. Um, and to the extent that we are driven, <laughs> you know, yes. for that, like, um, if I'm busy, I must be important. Um, there, that's where you sort of have the um, backlash, right? So in our work where we show that having too much time or many discretionary hours in Wednesdays such that you see reduced satisfaction, you don't actually see that when the discretionary time is spent in productive ways itself. So, um, and we collected uh, data to ask people of the discretionary activities, um, which of these are worthwhile and feel productive and which aren't. And hobbies, so something that sort of fulfills your personal interests, yeah. um, exercise, people view it as productive and worthwhile. Also actually social connection. Um, so spending time with others, quality time with others is viewed as productive and, or at least worthwhile. Um, then you actually don't see this dip. So in terms of like the answer to your question is for some of us, for many of us, for me, I will say for me, my work does give me a great sense of purpose. I love my, I yes, love I can researching. See. I everyone can hear it in your voice. <laughs> um, but it doesn't have to be through work that um, are those ways of spending time that feel worthwhile. And so what I would suggest is that instead of sort of pursuing busyness, it is actually um, being deliberate and thoughtful in spending the hours of your days in ways that do feel worthwhile. So yeah. interestingly, um, if you look at, all right, so what are some good ways of spending time versus bad ways of spending time? Research researchers have looked to answer this question through time tracking. So they, um, over the course of individuals' days, they uh, track 
what they're doing as well as how they feel, how positive or negative they feel while doing those activities so that you can identify, you know, on average, what are those activities that tend to be associated with the more positive emotion? What are those activities that tend to be associated with the more negative emotion? Um, and from that, you can sort of identify what are those activities that will be more likely yeah. to feel worthwhile um, having done it. And consistently, you see that social connection, so, so activities that involve connecting with others in an authentic way or through physical intimacy. <laughs> so there is yeah. that um, that is associated with more positive emotion, as does exercise, actually. And people that sometimes sounds surprising because some people, many people probably view it as like, ugh, this thing that I don't want to do and it feels like a chore. But actually, not only the effect of while you're doing it, but the carryover effect of how you feel across your other activities subsequently is really positive. Those activities that tend to be associated with the most negative emotion are commuting, so getting to and from work, work yeah. for the average American, at least in this data, work, the hours that they spend at work are the least positive, as is housework. But what I would suggest for individuals, and this is an exercise I have my students do, and it's one that I walk through in quite a bit of detail in my book because I think it's so helpful for it's each of us to collect our own data, is do time tracking for yourself. So over the course of one or two weeks, I actually say two weeks because it's a more um, complete uh, representation of the activities that fill your life. Write down what you're doing every half hour. So what is the activity? But um, importantly, how happy, using my broad definition of how satisfied do you feel right now while you're doing that activity? And then at the end of those two weeks, you have this amazing source of data that you can look and look across your types of activities. What are those that for you are really satisfying? What are those activities that are dissatisfying? And another thing you can do is look at not only, you know, what are those activities that you should perhaps make more time for, or at least carve out time for, because they are so positive. But you can also see how much time you're spending across your various activities, which can be very informative. Uh, for my students, for instance, uh, the amount of time they spend on screens passively, yes. um, and the passive is what makes it um, more of a mediocre ratings in terms yeah. of their happiness, is scrolling social media. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those interesting things where I'm not on social media <laughs> purposely yeah, because I know that it makes me less happy and I sort of practice what I teach. But um, the, you know, it's one of these things that people are like, oh, I'll only, you know, really quickly spend a couple minutes um, checking, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is, their feeds. But those minutes, add up because it always ends up being more than a couple minutes and across the entire week. So I've had students calculate that they spend um, 15 hours in their week. And these are students who are have a full-time job getting their MBAs. Some of them have families, so they don't have a lot of time yeah. to spare. And if you're spending 15 hours looking at your little phone and like people's lives that aren't your own, that's a lot of wasted time. And so that's really helpful and informative, particularly if you see that you've given it a five on a 10 point yes. scale, you're like, oh gosh, maybe I need to reallocate some of those hours towards those activities that you're giving, you know, nine or 10, but aren't spending all that much time for because quote unquote, you don't have enough time. Well, you do if you reallocate, you know, reshuffle some of those hours um, towards those um, more satisfying activities. So speaking of how people allocate time and what's a satisfying or worthy, for lack of a better word, activity, I'm going to recount an anecdote based on a client I work with. And I want to get your thoughts on why this is happening and how people can manage it, because I think it's very common. So I worked with a client and I still work with this client over a 10 year period. And during those, that 10 year period, we worked together. She became a partner at a major consulting firm, very successful, one of the youngest female partners in that office. And by all accounts, she was having a good career. She was very happy. She didn't seem particularly stressed. She loved her job and so on. And then she married 
And her husband was very successful and she decided to have kids. And he obviously was doing well enough whereby she didn't have to work. She ended up having kids and she ended up taking care of her kids full time. And then progressively, I've noticed that she became busier and busier taking care of her kids. She would sign them up into everything, drive them everywhere. And I remember speaking to her once and asking, you know, why are you so busy? Is it because you want to be busy? Do you find joy in this? Is there purpose and meaning in this? And she told me something that surprised me because I didn't expect this answer. And she said that she has to be busy because she's not working. She has to almost create the impression that she's adding value. And she's worried if she's not busy, people are going to judge her as someone who's wasting her life. But she doesn't want to be that busy. But it's a way of signaling that she's doing something important. Now, I don't know the drivers behind this, but maybe you've seen this before. And what advice would you have for someone who's in that position? Yeah, um, and that's a great question and uh, an important one because I think a lot of people actually put themselves into, um, get themselves into this time poor state, um, filling, sort of filling days with activities just for the sake of busyness yeah. and to feel productive. And um, I think the really important thing um, is to step back and for you, you and her, all yeah. of us yeah, <laughs> individually, of us. is to identify what matters to us. So yes. not using um, others' perceptions of, you know, the sort of superficial, like, are they spending their time in worthwhile ways? For you yourself, identifying what drives you, what is your purpose? Um, in uh, the book and in my class, I actually have my students go through this exercise called the five whys. Why do you do what you do? Um, and this can apply to your work um, or, I mean, it can apply more broadly. Like yes, what okay. drives you? Um, just to get, like, make it feel a little bit more concrete. Um, I'll use myself as an example. Um, so going through this five whys exercise. So initially, like, why do you do the work that I do? Well, I'm a business school professor. So, you know, the job description is I conduct research, I teach, and I have to do, <laughs> have yeah. to, I get to do administrative get to service do it, for yes. my school. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, why do I do that? Well, you know, I want to disseminate or create knowledge, disseminate knowledge and, you know, support my university. Well, does that really drive me? I'm like, why do I do that? Well, I want people to be sort of smart, but I was like, is it just about knowledge per se? I'm like, that's actually not what gets me up in the morning. Like, what gets me up in the morning is creating knowledge about what makes people happy disseminating knowledge about what makes people happy and then creating happiness within my community at the institution where I am. Knowing that for me, that's my purpose. That is not my colleague's purpose. That is yeah. not my husband who's very successful in his career's purpose. That is not, you know, it is mine. And that knowing what drives me is my metric for success. So if I am succeeding. It's actually all the more satisfying. I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, it's working. If I am not sort of aligning with that, that mission, then actually that's where I feel dissatisfaction. Um, and it's this, what it does is it makes it much more intrinsically motivating. It makes it so you're not reliant on what other people are perceiving um, and how you're spending your time or even who you are, or what you're doing. And so it's so critical to pull this, um, these motivations for yes. her of like, who cares what other people think, <laughs> you know, that's, that's gonna like solve nothing because A, they're not paying as much attention to you as they think you think they are. And it's like this sort of um, amorphous moving metric of success. But if you are able to identify, so for her, if, it wasn't just about being busy, but it's like, actually, maybe her purpose is developing and being really sort of a crucial part of the um, raising of her children to create, you know, like kids who feel a particular way. What I mean, I don't know. 
this woman. Yes. And I would love to like sit down and sort of get to her underlying why so that it's not driven by what you think other people think you should do. And it's driven more by you. Interestingly, I have my students and I love this exercise because it's so informative for all of us. What I have people do is interview, identify someone who's done life right. So yeah. like from your perspective, has, has, has lived a good life and is happy, you know, cause actually, <laughs> yeah. um, we have a lot to learn from these folks as we're trying to make decisions about how we spend our days and hours and careers and years. There's people who, who have experience that they can share with us. And so what I have my students do is identify someone who's towards the end of their life, who has done it right and ask them, what are your greatest sources of pride? And what is your greatest source of regret? And it's very informative for each individual to learn from that, that person. But what I have my students do is I have them, I'll come back to class the next week and I have them share. And so over the course of the few years of teaching this, I've compiled data of what are the greatest sources of pride? What are the greatest sources of regret? Um, interestingly, it's greatest source of pride. And these many of these are very professionally accomplished individuals. Um, their greatest source of pride isn't uh, professional or tends not to be. You see that 75% of folks, and it's interesting because even within yeah. each class, it's the same break, <laughs> breakdown. 75% yeah. of people, their greatest source of pride is, are their relationships. Um, 75%? Yes, it is. And then the others are, um, yeah, I actually think that that's the big, like, there's lots of other things, you know, there's yes. like, one could say finance, financial success or professional accomplishment, you know, it is their relationships. You know what the greatest source of regret is not spending enough time on those relationships, as well as missing out along the way. So we actually have work that shows when people take a broader bird's eye view of their time, thinking in terms of years, thinking in terms of their life overall, as opposed to thinking hour by hour, people spend their hours better. They spend their hours in terms of what feels important versus what just seems urgent. And those who take, or therefore, I would say, those who take this broader perspective of their time, thinking your years instead of hours, we find it is positively associated with satisfaction in life. It's positively associated with meaning. It's uh, negatively associated with negative emotion, so they feel less negative emotion. Um, and what that is really helpful is because um, while my book is called Happier Hour, it's not sort of optimizing hour by hour and mm -hmm. that being the goal. It's thinking about your life overall and how do you spend your hours in ways that are aligned with what ultimately matters to you. Not what matters to, you know, this sort of thought of what other people might yeah. think. It's what matters to you. And there are, and even thinking about your life overall um, starts to clarify what matters to you. Um, and through that, you can spend your hours better. So I have a follow-up question. Here. It's an interesting question. So you've, you've polled your class members or your students, right? Was it your yeah, students? students. So 75% of the interviewees mm -hmm. that they admired in terms of the way they managed their life listed relationships as their most important, most important asset, for lack of a better word, that they're most proud of. Mm -hmm. Now, I come from the world of management consulting. And I can tell you right now that most people end up not having good relationships. Mm -hmm. If I had to poll my colleagues, I'm going to say that most of them are in unhappy relationships. And I think I've done that a few times at the office. So my, my question here is that, is what the research showing here that on average, 75% of people would say their relationships is what makes them happy? 
or is it just a sample size or the sample that we've selected from your students? It, and it's not just uh, the admired elders whom my students interviewed. There's a phenomenally interesting um, study that's been conducted over 75 years. It's the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And what they've done is they have tracked a cohort of men um, from Boston, some of whom were Harvard students, um, others who were from um, less affluent or yeah. sort of uh, less affluent part of the city. And they've tracked these individuals over 75 years, um, every so often surveying them to find out what they're doing as well as how they're doing and how they're feeling. And what they found, the single biggest predictor of true happiness and satisfaction um, of these men at the end of their lives was whether they had strong, supportive relationships. Oftentimes, that came in the form of family. Sometimes it was having friends that are so close that they feel yes. like family. It was not fame. It was not wealth. And this is instructive. Uh, for us and for those who might be thinking like, oh my, oh my gosh, I don't, I have been choosing more in, in line with my career rather than my relationships. Um, it's not too late, I guess. Yes. And also interestingly, it doesn't have to take a whole bunch more time. I, it's not a one or the other of career or relationships. It is to the extent that the time that you spend with those others, and both in the important times that you are there for them, but even while you're spending that time of, again, it's actually going back to one of the very first things I said, which is about attention. The story of happiness is about where you are directing your attention. When you put your focus, yes. And when you're spending the time with those others, that you put your phone away, you sort of shut off your thinking about work, and even a half hour in the week where it is truly connecting that your only attention is on that person, that time, those minutes can very much color the rest of your week. They very much color your relationship. A really powerful uh, exercise that I have my students do and also that I talk about in the book is writing a gratitude letter. And one of my executive uh, MBA students said that actually this, he thinks, and the course saved his marriage. Um, and writing a letter of gratitude. So for the, a person who is in your life, who is important to you, and who has done stuff that you have to be yes. thankful for, is expressing it. And in that writing of the letter, A, it will draw your attention to the power of that person and that relationship, but delivering it, and you can deliver it however you want. It might be writing it in a letter form and, yes. you know, having them open that piece of paper. It could be through email. It could be through you writing it, but you actually um, saying it, presenting it to the person that those letters are so powerful in mending relationships. And once you've attended to um, that person and that you've identified that relationship as important, um, it's, uh, it has uh, sort of good effects going forward. Another uh, exercise that is uh, helpful is, <laughs> although, it can seem quite depressing, but it's really powerful. Um, and the effects are very positive, is counting your times left. Um, so some oh, of- Yes, 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 that is true. Uh, if you reflect back um, over your last two weeks and are like, okay, what was something that really brought me true joy? Um, no matter how busy, we all have sort of moments of joy. Um, Oftentimes, people note that it's very simple everyday things, and oftentimes it involves 
an important person, someone you care about. And what happens though is because these things are every day, they happen every day, we sort of assume that they will continue to be available to yes. us and continue happening every day in the way that, you know, that way that it brought you joy at that moment. But things they don't continue happening every day. I mean, not only are, you know, are we not going to live forever, nor will that other person, but even the sort of context of our life and the changing sort of patterns of our life make it so that those simple joys aren't going to continue happening in that same way. And this is very um, relevant for folks who have uh, young kids. Um, you know, it's not mm -hmm. like, 18 years that I have, you know, with my kids um, of, you know, spending time in the ways that I like. No, it's like they're going to want to spend time with their friends in just a couple of years yeah. and not want to hang out with me. They are going to grow quickly. They are going to move out of the house at some point and be, I, you know, mark my words, they will be yes. uh, capable, independent individuals. Um, so, it is, and so what I have folks do is calculate a, a activity that you enjoy, calculate how many times have you done it in your life thus far, and calculate how many times, accounting for these factors, like, you know, the person's not going to live forever, you're not going to live forever, Yes. they're going to not live in the same place as you forever, um, or, you know, how many times do you have left? And then look at the percentage of your times overall, how many times are, are you at the tail end? And what people recognize is actually, wow, it's much more limited than you think. This sort of notion of like, okay, I'm doing career now, the relationship will be there later. The relationship isn't always going to be there. And it's certainly not if you don't attend to it and pay attention in the times that you do. But by doing this calculation, it, the, the point is not to depress you. The point is, and which it shows to have these effects, and I've seen this um, very vi vividly among my students, is what it does is it leads you to prioritize that time. And not only making that time to spend, like carving out and protecting time to spend in those, that joyful way, but really paying attention during that time, when you realize that that time is limited, mm -hmm. it makes you savor more. Yes. And so in my work, I actually find that, you know, actually going back to your, one of your very initial questions or comments is, as people get older, what happens? Well, they start to recognize that their time is limited. Young people take their happiness for granted for lots of reasons. They sort of assume they'll be happy and it'll be like fine and easy, yes. but also they think that their futures are endless. As you get older, you start to realize that your time is finite. finite. The amount of time you have left is limited. And what my research, we find in my research is that that leads people to savor more. They enjoy greater happiness from even ordinary moments. Um, and that's what this activity of counting your times left is it makes you savor more. Yes. Those minutes that you spend, even if they're just minutes with your partner um, or your child, if you're paying full attention and they feel it when you're paying attention, then just a few minutes can have a significant influence on the relationship overall and therefore your satisfaction in life. One of the biggest contributors um, to happiness is having strong relationships. I've done a similar exercise. It wasn't more as an exercise, but more as a thought process mm -hmm. because I've been to over 54 countries. I've traveled to many places. And I was speaking to an individual once, and he framed time in a very different way, similar to you, actually. And he told me, Michael, you realize you've only got maybe 35 good summers left. And I said, what? 35? That's not a lot. 35 Memorial Days, 35 Labor Days, 35 birthdays. When you put it into that perspective, it's, it's a scary thought. 35 is not a big number. For me, anyway, it's not a big number. It's too little, actually. It's not. 
Absolutely. And what does that make you do? Well, first you're like, oh my God, I'm scared. But what actually it makes you do is summers. The 35 summers left. You make this summer a really great one. Exactly. Yes, you are spending time. And also I actually think I've been talking a lot about maximizing your time outside of work, but there are pieces of you, actually the time tracking um, exercise is really helpful because even though on average for the average American, uh, average sort of instantiation of their work hours are among the least happy in your time tracking, you can actually identify what of your work hours are really positive. And so that you can sort of really focus and make the most of those hours. Oftentimes it is like when you're actually doing the work that you were hired to do, like you're creating and you're producing and it's not all the sort of noise and nonsense and admin and email and, you know, whatever. Um, So it all to say it's recognizing um, the limited nature of our time makes us really thoughtful, really deliberate in how we spend it and spending in ways that are ultimately fulfilling. And again, the research shows, anecdotally, it shows up again and again. If you look at actually sort of classical psychology theories, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which everyone has sort of heard about. And so what Maslow, he was a a psychotherapist that over the course of uh, meeting with his uh, clients or patients, however you want to describe it, over his years of of doing therapy, what he devised was this hierarchy of needs. At the basic level are our physiological needs. So you need shelter, you need food, you need health. Um, But once those needs, and it's not like, it's not like you have to maximize these things. If those needs are met, the very most basic, the very next most basic psychological need is connection. It's a sense of belonging. Um, And then on like, only once you feel that authentic connection, you feel a sense of belonging, then you move up the hierarchy of needs to personal accomplishment and then ultimately self-actualization. But if you're sort of pursuing self-actualization or even sort of accomplishment without having the, that sense of connection, then um, you feel dissatisfied. So it's sort of like that pyramid is helpful because it prioritizes these various things that we want. We, we of course, we all want to be self-actualized where we are yes. spending our careers and our lives in ways that are sort of, you know, ultimately using our talents and our skills um, and in line with our purpose. But it's no fun to get there if you have no one to share it with. Um, and even yes. more basic than that, you'll actually, loneliness is one of the most direct um, paths towards depression. So all to say, <laughs> it's worth investing those minutes, paying attention during those minutes to those people in your life that matter. Um, and then then from there, the rest um, you can sort of fill out and live out in a sort of optimal way. Cassie, thank you so much. That was one of the best discussions I've had. I think personally, I found it very fulfilling to speak to you because whenever I speak to anyone, I always think, how can I personally benefit from this? And how can our listeners benefit from this? So this was one of, I think, the most helpful discussions we've had because I can see how this will help many of our listeners and clients. I can actually see the impact it would have in their lives. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that because that's absolutely what I want. I want each individual to figure out, or not even to figure out, I'm doing the figuring out with the research and sort of relaying it in my course and in the book, but for people to then know so that they can apply it so that at the end of their life, um, they're not looking back with regret or at the end of the year, they're not looking and feeling sort of despondent because they feel lonely or disconnected 
Um, and it is possible, despite the fact that we feel so like we don't have enough hours to do yeah. it all, we do. It's just a question of how we allocate those hours and paying attention during those hours um, that makes it so that we feel satisfied and fulfilled. So I want the listeners to try it, do it. It works. <laughs> Amazing job. I just found that it's very rare when you meet someone who's passionate about something and has the ability to communicate it in well, such a wonderful way. So I really enjoyed this discussion. You've definitely had an impact for me in terms of how I'll think about this subject. Oh, well, thank you. And I enjoyed it as well. Take care. <laughs> thank you so much. Very wonderful. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.